welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today we are going to go way beyond just training and nutrition, but we are going to stay in the realms of nutrition. We're just going to tap into some mindset conversation today. Um, it is a solo show, and we are going to be pulling up some research, so we have a specific topic that we are going to try and tackle today, and that topic is whether or not tracking your food, measuring and weighing and calculating calories and macros and, and all this kind of if it fits your macro stuff or just tracking in general, we're just going to uh, consider this quote-unquote diet tracking. I'm going to say tracking quite a bit. I'm going to say tracking calories. I'm going to say tracking macros. I'm going to say measuring food. They're all interchangeable. The whole goal here is to cover one specific topic, which has been a question that has been really a a burning question for a long time. It's been debated uh, between a lot of people, and I've always kind of felt a little sour towards the conversation because I think it's very biased in one direction or the other when people are debating it. And I think it's so highly individual that it really can't be argued. There's no black and white answer to this. However, uh, there has been uh, more and more research and and another recent paper was released on it and uh, Eric Trexler from Stronger by Science uh, reviewed this in Mass Research Review and that's where I first discovered this study, Uh, went through his review, dug through the study um, and kind of just kept digging into this research in general and I actually have, let's see here, I got uh, a really, really good review article and then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different research papers that cover this topic uh, that I will link in the description of the podcast. I will not link the mass research review um, article simply because you need a subscription for that. However, I will link where you can sign up for mass research review. I am not affiliated with mass. I don't get any points or money or anything kicked back to me for suggesting you sign up for mass. However, the guys over at mass research review, uh, Greg Knuckles, Mike Zordos, Eric Helms, and Eric Trexler, they're fantastic people. I've had conversations with almost all of them. Um, I've been coached by one of them and uh, I can't say good enough things. So they do a lot of great stuff in the space. They're bringing a lot of research forward and is one of the best research reviews out there, if not the best. It's really affordable. So if you're a coach, if you're somebody who likes to dive into the research, I highly suggest it. And once again, I get nothing for saying this. I just really like what they're doing. I believe in the product um, and I personally subscribe to it. So I want to suggest that you do too, because I know if you're listening to this, if you're watching this, you love the science as well. So with that being said, what is the topic? What are we actually talking about today? And the burning question that we're diving into is, does tracking macros cause disordered eating? So we're going to cover a few different things within this. Uh, This should be a shorter podcast. I am going to dive into the science. So uh, there's guaranteed to be a little bit of uh, in-depth rants, you could call them, throughout this podcast. But we're going to try to keep this brief, get right to the point, and just deliver a simple, uh, straightforward, science-based podcast for you today. And it's going to cover this question, does tracking macros cause disordered eating and or eating disorders, which is the first thing we're going to actually cover today and talk about is what is the difference between disordered eating and eating disorders? Because there is a big difference. And there's a review article um, that I want to share with you guys that I'm going to bring up. And it is from Psychology Today. And they dive very, very deep in this. So I'm going to link this in the description of the podcast so that you can look at this and uh, go into it. Now, eating disorders are something very very specific. Eating disorders are typically clinical, um, and we can title those as 
anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, uh, binge eating disorder, and eating disorder otherwise not specific. Uh, specified. So when we look at actual eating disorders, it is when we are having something that is clinically based. So today I'm not going to dive into eating disorders. That is uh, reserved for something that you would go over with your professional, your doctor, your physician, somebody that is a specialist in that realm, um, whether that is a food psychiatrist uh, or food therapist, a dieting therapist, or just a psychologist or a psychotherapist, somebody in the uh, realm of being an actual physician or doctor specialized in that realm. I am not here to determine or diagnose anything along those lines. So if you feel at any point that you are listening to this podcast, that you hear me discuss disordered eating and that you are uh, a level further than that, let's just say, I think that you should, uh, I recommend that you should go talk to a specialist because at the end of the day, we are nutrition coaches. We are nutritionists. Um, I have a dietitian in the making on my staff. There's a lot of dietitians that listen to this podcast, but none of the above are actual professionals dealing with that kind of disorder, right? So it is a clinical thing. Now, disordered eating is something that gets mistaken for eating disorder quite a bit. Um, So disordered eating is very, very common in the bodybuilding space. It's very common in any space that is uh, suggesting or causing any individual to diet repeatedly or diet aggressively, let's say, which is obviously common in the bikini figure physique bodybuilding world. It's also somewhat common in the um, CrossFit world as well, because there are times where people use CrossFit as an avenue to get fit, and then they fall into this habit or path of trying to lose weight. Um, It also happens in different spaces like modeling or even just being a normal person who stays up to date with constant social media and is influenced to try and get leaner and leaner and leaner. But what we are seeing here is a little bit different than eating disorders. This is something that uh, flexible dieting, a nutritionist, nutrition coach often can help with, sometimes still needs to seek medical professional or um, work alongside a therapist of some sort, which we have done many times as coaches. But there's also many times where people like myself have even fell into disordered eating from attacking a goal a little too aggressively and we get into these habits of being extremely OCD and methodical and meticulous with everything we're eating and it's not quite an eating disorder. It is just simply a bad relationship with dieting. It's a bad relationship with food Um, and I don't want to say simply because I don't want to uh, simplify this thing because it is very serious and it can take people down a dark path. It is something that we want to take very seriously. However, I want to make it clear that it's different than an eating disorder. This is disordered eating, okay? So in this article, they list out uh, just a few things, um, signs and symptoms of disordered eating. I think this is a very good way to look at this and understand more of what disordered eating is versus eating disorder. Like I said, eating disorder is when we are talking about anorexia, bulimia, overeating, binge eating, binge eating uh, based on emotional uh, status typically, um, whereas disordered eating is going to be uh, something that is triggered by constant dieting or the constant goal of aesthetic appeal. Now, these are some signs and symptoms. I'm going to read this word for word off of this article. So I'm going to link this article from psychology today, but I think the way they did this is beautiful. So I'm just going to use this specifically instead of trying to make it up in my own words. Uh, The first bullet is self-worth based highly or even exclusively on body shape and weight. Number two, a disturbance in the way one experiences their body. Example would be a person who falls in a healthy weight range, but continues to feel that they are overweight. Excessive or rigid exercise routine. 
obsessive calorie counting, anxiety about certain foods or food groups, a rigid approach to eating such as only eating certain foods, inflexible meal times, refusal to eat in restaurants or outside of one's home. So those are just some brief good examples of what disordered eating can be. Now, some of you listening may have been thinking as I was listening to those off is either A, I have experienced that before, or B, I'm experiencing that right now, right? And, and this is not something where like an eating disorder or uh, to an even more extreme example, an autoimmune disease or a disease of some sort, it's either you got it or you don't. This is a scale of disordered eating. And I want to make that clear because if you do experience some of those things at times, it does not mean that you are in this dark hole of disordered eating and there's no turning back. It just means that these are signs and symptoms that this could be becoming a problem and we probably want to try and attack this problem and fix this issue while we still can, right? So I don't want those signs and symptoms, that bullet list to scare you because it does not mean by any means that it's too late for you right? It just means that, hey, we need to pay attention to this. We should probably look into this and we sh- should probably start practicing some flexible methods, get some accountability and start working on the mindset behind the psychology behind dieting and fat loss specifically. So reviewing the research on disordered eating is what I want to do next. And all of this research is very specific, not to disordered eating particularly, uh, but specifically tracking calories, usually my fitness pal, cause that's the largest, uh, calorie counting app. So a lot of these programs or these, uh, researchers use that app. None of these research papers from what I'm aware of and could look into. And I, I really did try my best to look into this specific thing, but none of these research papers from what I can tell are associated with or funded by my fitness pal at all, which is really important because on top of there being eight, which is a good amount of research to show, um, all of them coming out with the same exact conclusion at the end of it. Um, but it's also important to look at who's funding the study. So just for people in general, when you're looking into research, if you are reading a research paper on nootropics or creatine or uh, a fat burner, Yohimbi, anything like that, make sure you are looking at who is funding the study. Usually it's at the very bottom. Sometimes it's in the full text and you don't have access to it, unfortunately, um, unless you subscribe to some of these places that release at different journals and re- research gate and stuff like that. However, if you are looking at a research paper on branched chain amino acids and you're like, wow, this research paper is showing really, really positive effects, which we know based on a lot of research is unlikely because branched chain amino acids don't do much if we are eating enough protein in our diet. Um, And then you scroll to the bottom and you see that a branched chain amino acid or a supplement company who creates branched chain amino acids is funding the research that's an issue, right? Um, This is part of the reason why I like Legion, who obviously sponsors this podcast, is because they fun research that has nothing to do with research or supplements sometimes, right? There was a lean gain study that may have not been published yet. I just know about it from uh, word of mouth from some of the researchers and it was funded by uh, Legion, but there was nothing to do with supplements. It was about building muscle and not putting on fat in the process. It was a lean gaining study, had nothing to do with supplements and they still fund it because they're trying to further the industry. Um, There's also research that they've funded like caffeine-based versus non-caffeine-based, so non-stimulant-based pre-workout formulas, and it is funded by them. So they are using their product, but they're open about it, and the goal is not to show you that um, their product is better than somebody else's or that you need these types of supplements. It's to show like, hey, let's see if we can make a pre-workout without caffeine and still get some of the same benefits, or is it just caffeine 
because a lot of times with pre-workouts, it's just the caffeine that gets going. Now, these are all side tangents and stuff, but the point is, is when you're looking at research, look at the authors, look who's funding the study, look who's backing and supporting it, because that is going to be really important. Um, There was a recent research paper on uh, the calorie equation, kind of this whole like uh, insulin obesity model, which we know, uh, we should know by now is not that accurate. Uh, But there's certain people in the industry, uh, and they really, really try to push that model, despite the energy balance model actually outweighing it over and over again. And they just created a study that showed some kind of significant changes. So you would think, but when you look into it, it's funded by them, it's ran by them and it's reviewed by them. So it's hard to say if that's true, because when we had people who are unbiased review the paper, they came up with a different outlook on it that completely changed the, uh, the, the outcome of what you think the research showed. So point being, guys, it's important to look into research and see uh, what's really behind the scenes. Now, the first paper I want to bring up um, is the one that uh, Eric Trexler actually reviewed in Mass Research Review. So again, I'll link Mass Research Review if you want to sign up for that. Um, and this one is called Introducing Dietary Self-Monitoring to Undergraduate Women via a Calorie Counting App Has No Effect on Mental Health or Health Behaviors. Results from a Randomized Control Trial. So you're going to see a lot of commonalities in these studies that I'm going to go through because again, all of them kind of came out with the same exact result. Um, and that was my goal because I really couldn't find many at all that showed any causation of MyFitnessPal tracking, creating uh, eating disorders or disordered eating. A lot of it was either no or neutral. And I found one study that showed a correlation. And all that meant, because I'm not going to go over that study, is all that correlation meant was that actually when they interviewed or researched a group of individuals who already had disordered eating or eating disorders, 75% of them also tracked their uh, calories in an app like MyFitnessPal, which made them see a correlation. That's a significant um, average, right? Out of a, out of a large group of people, 75% of them also track their calories, but that's a correlation, not a causation. It's not, we're not able to say that the MyFitnessPal caused the, that 75% of the groups eating disorder, or disordered eating. But what we can say is it's probably likely that if somebody does have some kind of disordered eating or eating disorder, they're probably tracking their macros or calories as well, which causes this pre-existing uh, fear or story, you could say, about tracking macros. However, it's a correlation, right? And it's obvious if you really think about it. That's like saying 75% of people who have disordered eating also work out or also weigh themselves on the scale or also use the mirror or pictures to see how they're looking. Like, these things are all going to be associated with eating disorders if we look at correlations because if somebody has an eating disorder or disordered eating, of course, they're monitoring all kinds of stuff. Now, is that exacerbating the problem? Probably. There, nowhere in this entire podcast is my goal to say that if somebody has a disordered eating issue or eating disorder, that tracking macros, looking in the mirror constantly, measuring, weighing in is going to exacerbate that or not. 100% it probably is, especially if you don't do it the right way, especially if it's an eating disorder. Now, if it's disordered eating, it can go both ways. I've seen many individuals work with us who have disordered eating, have disordered bo- like body dysmorphia, have disordered body image issues. 
And using the scale to weigh in on a regular basis, using an app like MyFitnessPal in a flexible dieting manner actually improves their disordered eating because it shows them a logical, non-emotional way to progress and maintain a lean, healthy physique without being rigid. And that's the main point a lot of these studies get to. Um, so, But I just want to make that clear because there's a lot of people um, listening who maybe know somebody, work with somebody, or personally have an eating disorder. And by no means am I saying that MyFitnessPal is, is, is a good idea for you no matter what. It could exacerbate the problem. It's very individually dependent, which I will get to in my conclusion of looking at all these research papers. But um, the the intervention of this this specific one, uh, the participants were randomly assigned to engage in dietary self-monitoring via MyFitnessPal for approximately one month or to receive no intervention at all. So basically, we have a group that is tracking and we have a group that is not tracking. Um, I'm not going to dive through everything, um, but uh, adherence was very high uh, with with participants recording their dietary intake, MyFitnessPal. On average, it was 89.1, so almost 90 percent of people, which is really high for a study to have people adhering to throughout the study. Um, and they were looking at a lot of different things, right? But what they found is, uh, you know, the assignment to the intervention, um, I'm quoting here, was not associated with changes in eating disorder risk, anxiety, depressive symptoms, body satis- uh, satisfaction, quality of life, nutritional intake, physical activity, screen time, or other weight-related self-monitoring. Good sign. So the conclusion they had is among dietary self-monitoring, naive undergraduate um, women with low risk of an eating disorder, dietary self-monitoring via MyFitnessPal for one month did not increase eating disorder risk, impact other aspects of mental health, or alter health behaviors, including dietary intake. The null results in our study may be due to the selection of a low-risk sample. Future research should explore whether or not the populations for whom dietary self-monitoring is contraindicated. So the good thing about this is they also say that they did self-select. They purposely selected people who didn't have any eating disorders or disorder eating prior. Um, I also would say maybe could be go longer than a month. Some of the research I'm going to pull up was longer a month, longer than a month, which that was my first thing is like a month, maybe not long enough. However, again, I have seven more studies, multiple of them are over a month. And I'm just going to kind of briefly go for, through the results so that we can get to my conclusion and, and understanding of it all. Uh, but the point here is that there was no association. There was no increased causation. And they were monitoring all these things to see if there would be any type of increased causation or um, even increased correlation with it. And in people who are already healthy and do not have any pre-existing disordered eating, there is no cause whatsoever of this creating it, according to this study. Which again, kind of lets me uh, lends me to go back to the belief of it being very individually dependent and being a personal attribute or characteristic. If we are attacking things aggressively and that's our personality, we might take my fitness pal way too far. But that's a personality thing. So on average, this is not going to happen. Hey guys, I want to take a quick second to shout out the sponsor of this podcast, which is myself. It's my own app, The Tailored Trainer, which is the simple solution to actually looking like you lift. My goal with The Tailored Trainer was to do just that. I had countless amount of people coming into our coaching to get nutrition guidance from us and they needed training help as well. And I was tired of hearing people tell me, I don't look like I lift. I'm in the gym hours every week. I'm training hard. I'm pushing myself. I'm sweating my ass off, but I don't look like I work out. What is the deal? And the deal is simple. There isn't a periodized plan backing up the effort they're putting in the gym. They don't have progressive overload methods and metrics and measurements inside their programming that are going to guide them to the result they're after, which is why I I wanted to create an app that did that for you. Not only does it have actually systemized programs that are effective for your goal, for your schedule, for your body type, and for your experience, because there are tons of programs in there. That's why it's called the tailored trainer, because you can literally tailor your training to your lifestyle and your schedule and your experience level. 
but it's also going to have the software and the metrics inside to make sure that it's progressive and periodized without you even realizing it. You don't have to do anything and it is programmed properly to get you to progress, which is why I always tell people, stop aimlessly working out using influencers, Instagram posts and YouTube videos as your plan. Start actually tailoring the training process to you. And you can do that by downloading this app. It's less than $1 a day. And you can head over to tailoredtrainer.net to read more about it, see screenshots of the app live itself, see reviews from some of the people using it, and see a personal letter from myself as to why I created this app in the first place. So once again, head over to tailoredtrainer.net. Now, let's get back into the podcast. The next study was called a, it was called calorie counting and fitness tracking technology associations with eating disorder symptoms, uh, symptomology. And this is again on PubMed. Most of these are, uh, and this was by Courtney Simpson and Suzanne Mazio. Uh, I will link this in the description as well. Um, Findings highlight associations between use of calorie and fitness trackers and eating disorder symptomology, although preliminary overall results suggest that for some individuals, these devices might do a little bit of harm compared to good. So more harm than good, essentially. Um, and when they went through this study, what they found is uh, they, they, they explored the associations uh, between the use of calorie counting and fitness trackers and eating disorders. So um, the reason I chose this study that goes against my beliefs is the only one that does uh, is because... One, I don't want to be completely biased and only list ones that show there is no correlation, right? This, again, showed a correlation. I don't believe this is a causation, but they did find something there, right? These participants were college students who reported their use of tracking technology and completed measures of eating disorder symptomology. Individuals who reported using calorie trackers manifested higher levels of eating concern and dietary strength controlling for BMI. Um, the problem with this one that I saw from what I had access to to look into <clears throat> is that I don't believe the group was as selected purposely to not have pre-existing issues that would correlate or cause uh, any type of eating disorders when diving into this. <clears throat> they were younger females in college and, uh, and we don't know and I, and I don't want to generalize or assume that that was anything to say they would have any type of disordered eating but that's all we got, right? There's no, there's no explanation here from what I have access to. Again, I only have access to so much for this study because I don't get access to the full text and all the different um, things that they put out there. But there's not a lot of info. The previous one was nice because they show this is a large group of people who did not show any disordered eating prior to the study, which is what I would want to see. I don't want to like, I don't want to see, it's not that it's not useful, but I don't, I'm not as interested in seeing if tracking, meticulously weighing, measuring all these things exacerbate or create more of a disordered eating when it's already present because I would venture to guess that it would. That makes sense. Anytime you're being pretty uh, neurotic about anything, when you already have a tendency to be that way, it's going to exacerbate that issue tremendously. The next one was called Towards a Sustainable Nutrition Paradigm in Physique Sport, a narrative review. Uh, and this one is going to be from Eric Helms and a couple other people. And this was really cool because it was more of like, again, a narrative review. So they're looking at a lot of research and just kind of generally trying to make recommendations to the physique athlete when it comes to the mental side of things. Um, and again, there was quite a bit on here. Uh, competitors are at mental risk due to pre-existing or predispositions to develop body image or eating disorders, biological effects, uh, of energy restriction on eating psychology and dietary restraints, uh, Att uh, attitude, sorry, and dietary restraint attitudes and resultant physique exercise and nutrition monitoring behavior. So 
The reason I like this is because they looked at a lot of things and they're, they're not pointing the finger at tracking, even though they looked at tracking as well. They're pointing the finger at the sport of bodybuilding. And mind you, these are bodybuilding coaches as well. So by no means are they trying to uh, sway people into the sport. They're also, they're, they're trying to warn people of like, hey, if you're going into the sport, these attributes are common. We should probably be aware of them. It's also why when people ask me uh, about jumping into competition because they have a goal of losing fat. And they're like, I think I want to do a bikini show. I want to do a physique show in order to get to my goal. I often tell them that I don't think it's a good idea unless you love the sport. If you like the sport, then you should go after it. Uh, if you're not a fan of the sport, of literally of the sport of bodybuilding, then I don't know if that's the best idea for you. I think it, it, it's just a way for you to have a hard timeline. And you can set that without getting on stage specifically. Um, I do want to uh, mention the conclusion they had before going to the next study, and that's in our narrative review, we cover each factor, concluding with tentative best practice recommendations, including dietary flexibility, slower weight loss, structured monitoring, gradual returns off to off-season energy intakes, internal eating cues, appropriate off-season body compositions, and support from nutritional, uh, nutrition and mental health professionals. A mental health focus is needed uh, is a needed paradigm shift in bodybuilding nutrition practice and research. Again, the reason I wanted to put this here is because they looked at, at tracking and those kind of things, and it wasn't necessarily that that caused this, but they make some really good recommendations and show you some signs of what we should be looking at when going into such an extreme endeavor like bodybuilding. Um, and that's going to be uh, tentative best practices, including dietary flexibility, huge, slower weight loss, not being so aggressive, structured monitoring, not aggressive or rigid monitoring, gradual returns to off-season energy intake, so using reverse diets and not trying to maintain extremely low body fat levels, uh, internal eating cues, which a lot of people ignore, but slowing down when you eat, being mindful of what you're consuming, enjoying the moment, being present, um, appropriate off-season body compositions, which obviously is more important in bodybuilders than anybody else, but it goes to show that we can't try to sustain too lean of a physique, um, and then support from a nutritional or mental health specialist, so having somebody in your corner to hold you accountable. The next one, self-monitoring has no adverse effect on eating dis on disordered eating in adults seeking treatment for obesity. Really straightforward title, and it, and it it's it's basically exactly what I've been talking about here. Um, the conclusion was simple: there was no evidence that self-monitoring, including using diet apps like MyFitnessPal or daily self-weighing, increases the reported occurrence of eating disorder behaviors in adults with overweight slash obesity who are trying to lose weight. So they literally did a research paper um, with 250 adults that were overweight or obese, um, and they put them through a diet, exercise, regular weigh-ins and everything. And there was no evidence uh, of any of those things I mentioned increasing the reported occurrence of disordered eating. Really, really good one that shows it straightforward that this is, and it's a large group of people. Um, next one is body checking in non-clinical women, experimental evidence of specific impact on fear of uncontrollable weight gain. So this is a good one because that's not necessarily specific to my fitness pal and tracking macros, but it does, does show us that maybe there's more to it, right? So we can use or say, uh, that my fitness pal is a correlation, right? In that, that study that didn't favor mine, but I kind of suggested that it might've been just a correlation, not a causation. This is a good example as to why that may be. And the reason it was a co correlation is because, yes, if somebody has disordered eating, they're probably tracking something in general because they're dieting and you kind of have to track something, even if you're not using MyFitnessPal, if you're dieting, but there might be more things that are bad habits for them that these studies weren't looking at because it's easy for them to, to look at MyFitnessPal. Body checking um, is used widely among clinical and non-clinical individuals. Um, it is suggested to be a behavior, uh, a safety behavior, reducing anxiety initially, but potentially enhancing eating 
and shape concerns in longer term. Basically meaning when we look in the mirror, we are checking ourselves to make sure we're staying lean, but eventually it can get somewhat neurotic and this can cause behavior issues. So uh, I'm trying to find their conclusion here. Uh, These findings add to the small experimental evidence base demonstrating negative causal links between body checking and eating pathology. The findings need to be extended to clinical groups, but support to the use of existing cognitive behavior methods to reduce body checking behavior. So basically what they did is they found that a lot of the uh, actual disordered eating was coming from people who were constantly looking at their physique, constantly looking at themselves in the mirror, constantly checking pictures, constantly checking, body checking, right? Um, And they used methods to try to reduce the desire to body check and that actually caused an improvement in disordered eating. Uh, We have two more studies to review real quick and then I'll get into my conclusion. Daily self-weighing and adverse psychological outcomes, a randomized control trial. Um, this one, uh, it, it got into um, daily self-weighing. And I like this one because I'm going to read the results and the conclusion because the results kind of uh, show this is a, a six-month randomized control trial, which is actually really, really good. Um, but in 2012, using linear and mixed models and generalized estimating equation models, there were no significant differences between groups in depressive symptoms, anorectic cognitions, uh, disinhibition, susceptibility to hunger, and binge eating. At six months, there was a significant group X time interaction before body dissatisfaction and dietary restraint with intervention group reporting lower body dissatisfaction and greater dietary restraint compared to controls. Um, so it doesn't tell you much except the timeline and uh, what they were looking at, but the results indicate that a weight loss intervention that focuses on daily self-weighing does not cause adverse psychological outcomes. This suggests that daily self-weighing is an effective and safe monitoring a self sorry, safe weight control strategy among overweight adults who attempt to lose weight. Um, this is really good. And there was another study that I, that I had right after it that is very similar. And it's called weight loss maintenance for 10 years in the national weight control registry. Um, and essentially what they found here is the majority of weight lost by these members of this group, which was the NWCR, which stands for national weight control registry. Duh. Um, is maintained over 10 years. Long-term weight loss maintenance is possible and requires sustained behavior change. A lot of the people who did not, so decreased, so the people who did not sustain that longer after the diet and dietary or in that 10-year period, which basically is saying of these people, we saw what helped them sustain the weight afterwards, which was actually weighing in consistently. So using these tracking metrics, um, and it actually showed no association with the eating, uh, disordered eating, and it actually showed more association with uh, sustainability of the weight loss. Uh, and then on the opposite side, the people who were unable to sustain that weight loss, um, they had decreased uh, decreases in leisure time, physical activity, so less movement activity, uh, decreases in dietary strength. So they paid less attention to restraining or Um, Not necessarily restricting, but actually paying attention to their diet. So restraint isn't always restriction. It's actually just control and having control over that. And decreases in frequency of self-weighing and increases in percentage of energy intake from fat and disinhibition were associated with greater weight gain. So basically what they saw is for the people after the study that were not sustaining their weight, they usually had a drop in activity, physical activity. So maybe they weren't purposely taking as many walks, doing cardio, doing training, Take, getting their steps in. Um, they also saw an increase in dietary fat intake. So they actually consumed more fat post-diet uh, in the diet specifically, uh, which I don't want to hammer on that one too hard because it's, uh, you know, there could be a many reasons for that because maybe they just fell off the diet and a lot of foods that are um, highly palatable also have a lot of fats in it. And we could have said that there maybe during the diet, they were following a high carb, high protein diet. Um, and then when they went off the diet, they stuck with high carb, high 
protein, but they also added fats from these highly palatable foods. So it looks like they just increased fats, but it could have been just higher caloric intake. I'm not going to uh, overanalyze that. But what we did see is, is that self-weighing and self-monitoring uh, and, and having some kind of dietary restraint over their diet actually improved their sustainability. And those who had decreases in dietary restraint and stopped weighing in as much, um, they actually fell off and they didn't sustain the weight, right? So there's no association with my fitness pal here, but dietary restraint goes to say that they're following some kind of diet. They're doing something to track their progress. And on top of that, they're weighing in on a very regular basis, if not daily, which tells us that doing these things isn't not, it's not only going to, um, it's not only not going to increase the likelihood of disordered eating, but it's also going to increase the likelihood of sustainability. So there was a lot of research, uh, but what, what actually causes disordered eating in my opinion, and uh, what are the takeaways of this podcast? Like, that's what I want to get to now. Um, all of the studies, what I was trying to prove is that you cannot really show that MyFitnessPal, tracking macros, tracking your food, or any of that actually causes any type of disordered eating. You can, however, link up correlations, but you can also link up correlations with body checking. You can link up correlations with personality types. You can link up correlations with bodybuilding. It does not mean that everybody who looks in the mirror has disordered eating. It does not mean everybody who weighs in or tracks their food or enters bodybuilding or has blank personality type is going to have disordered eating. That's why correlations are not nearly as positive or uh, telling to us as causations. And we have to be careful with correlations. We can be aware of correlations and we can try to understand if that correlation relates to us specifically. And we notice those habits or patterns. Otherwise, we have to rely on causations to tell us if something's actually going to cause an issue with us. Now, what actually causes disordered eating, in my opinion, and with my experience of over 10, 11 years now of coaching and being in this industry... Uh, personality types and attributes are definitely up there. There's a lot of people who are all or nothing and they cannot help but go all in and be extremely restrictive if they're on a diet. They are either extremely restrictive or they are way off the diet, not caring at all. Um, some of these people switch day to day. Some people switch week to week. Some people, it's they're on a diet for three months and then they're off for six. It's, it's really dependent, but I think personality types and characteristics and attributes of an individual have a lot to do with going down that path and whether or not those correlations are even going to be strong or relevant to those people. Um, goal specific to extreme outcomes. So obviously this is why there's a correlation with bodybuilding. If you have too extreme of a goal or your timeline is too extreme, you're trying to get things done too aggressively and too quickly. Um, which leads me to my next bullet dietary processes that restrict, uh, to extreme measures, which is going to be specific to those who have extreme goals or timelines that may cause disordered eating more than likely. Um, and then lack of flexibility, which is just too much rigidness that has been shown time and time again, both in experience and in research to cause more. And they saw that in that review of bodybuilders and physique, uh, that physique analysis. And that was called towards a sustainable nutrition paradigm in physique sport, a narrative review in that one, they saw that a lack of flexibility was more likely to cause this. And this is why maybe rigid meal plans probably aren't the safest bet. But even if you do repeat foods day after day, which a lot of people do, including myself, uh, we also do so with the understanding of what those macros are, why those meals are helping us. Not that those meals are specific or, to us or special for us. And I say that because I, I teach clients and I have, was taught myself, what are the macros and the, the caloric intake and the protocols that are going to get me to the next level? I'm going to create a meal plan by choice, which is a big key. I'm choosing to use this meal plan day to day that fits my macros versus somebody giving me a meal plan and me having to be rigid and restricted to that specific meal plan. So flexibility is key. And those are a lot of the takeaways. Uh, my biggest takeaways in re reading all this research is weighing in daily increases sustainability of weight loss, does not cause issues with people in research, um, does not mean people have issues with the scale, but I think daily weigh-ins actually tend to 
really prevent or remove that issue with the scale. A lot of people are fearful of the scale because they don't step on it enough. So when they see it, it's a shock. But if you consistently step on it and you see the fluctuations, you begin to learn that it's just a number and you can correlate those, the number on the scale going up and down to what you're doing with your sleep, your stress, your training, your diet, your water intake, your sodium. And then you can begin to have a logical perspective on why that weight is the way it is. Um, my next takeaway was flexibility promotes better relationships with food. I think that's an obvious one. That's why we created, not me personally, but it's why they created flexible dieting. And that's why it shows that it's, it's going to trump, uh, and outdo rigid dieting because rigid dieting with meal plans and too much restriction actually caused more of a disordered eating pattern. Um, tracking calories has been correlated infrequently and has never been shown in research as a causation. So my fitness pal tracking macros, tracking calories, there's never been a study that can, uh, black and white say it's a causation of disordered eating. There's a couple that can say it's a correlation, but many that say it's not even associated with or correlated at all, which is a very, very positive note for anybody who is wondering if, uh, tracking macros could get that way. The truth is, is if you, if you practice flexibility and balance, you're not going to have that issue. And that's based on research, not my personal opinion. Um, signs of disordered eating should be paid attention to. I want to make that very clear because uh, disordered eating can turn into eating disorders and it can become a problem that uh, wears on you mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, so on and so forth. Um, and even in bleed into your relationships, your lifestyle. So uh, I don't want people to take it lightly. I think you should be looking into this and getting help from a nutrition coach, nutritionist, or a, a mental health specialist if needed, especially if it's an eating disorder. However, we have been talking about disordered eating today. Um, it's very personally independent in regards to what disordered behaviors any fitness devices may cause. So again, everybody's individual. Certain things may cause more neurotic habits than others. Uh, for some people, there's no neurotic behavior at all. Uh, but it's, it's, I think it's, it would be inaccurate of me to say and inappropriate and just just not aligned with my integrity to say that it's impossible to create any type of negative behavior in anybody because everybody's so individually dependent. Um, and then last but not least, weight regain is more associated with decreases in activity, loss of dietary restraint or control, and increases in dietary fat intake, while sustainability of weight loss process is not associated with any eating disorders or disordered eating between the tracking, the weighing, and all those things. And I think that was a really big, big takeaway on that last study that I reviewed. So my goal with today's podcast, guys, was to lay out the research and kind of nail the hammer in the, or sorry, hammer the nail in the coffin about this conversation and this idea that tracking macros or being on a dietary restraint protocol, which is really any diet that has full control over what you're consuming on a regular basis, causes disordered eating, but rather disordered eating may be more caused by personality types and how you approach the dietary restraint, not the type of dietary restraint. And I mean that by, yes, tracking macros could be correlated with disordered eating, but it's not because of tracking macros, it's how aggressive, rigid, and extreme you take tracking macros, which is why we promote flexible dieting and balance within. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I try to keep it brief, just over 30 minutes, diving into the science, giving you what I believe is, is both uh, really evidence-based and it's both science and research with my experience and opinion. Um, if you like these type of episodes, obviously, please leave me a five-star rating and review. That would be amazing. It would help us grow in iTunes. And of course, share it with a friend if you think anybody could benefit from this. Or if you just want to shout out one more point for tracking your food and, and doing what you do without feeling ashamed for it, because we know that it's not necessarily causing or correlated with any type of disordered eating at all. It's just a structured way to approach your diet. I appreciate you guys for listening. I will catch you next time. Bye.